I was gonna tell a time travel joke, but you guys didn't like it. Ha 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 ha! Chris, Dave, time travel, next. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome back to a new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. We have reached episode 96, believe it or not. The countdown is on to episode 100. In this week's episode, Chris and I will discuss some of our all-time favorite time travel episodes of television series or time travel-based franchises and discuss a little bit what makes a good time travel story. But before that, it is, of course, as always, time for... Now, Chris, uh, this this new story you're bringing to the table this week is a little disturbing in my book. It, it, it truly is, and I want to preface this story. Um, we do try our best to appropriate use appropriate pronouns. Sometimes we falter, um, but that is out of no malice or anything. So um, we are talking Ezra Miller unhinged, and Ezra Miller uses they them pronouns. If at any point in this story we use any other pronouns, we pre-apologize. But a restraining order has been filed against them after bursting into a couple's Hawaii hostel bedroom, threatening them, stealing their passport, wallet, and other belongings. Now, this came just days after being arrested, after Miller was arrested on multiple charges stemming from a situation at a local Hilo Hawaii bar in which, quote, this is quoting the police report, Miller began yelling obscenities at one point, grabbed the microphone from a 23-year-old woman singing karaoke, a disorderly conduct offense, and later lunged at a 32-year-old man playing darts, a harassment offense, police stated. The bar owner asked Miller to calm down several times to no avail, end quote. It would appear that uh, Ezra Miller has heard one too many renditions of Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga's hit song, Shallow, as that song proved to be the linchpin of the bar fiasco. Miller, I mean, in fairness, that, in fairness, that would trigger <laughs> me too at this point. <laughs> I'm a fan. I'm a fan. I'm, I'm going to go the other way on that one. <laughs> Miller, who is currently visiting Hawaii, has been the subject of at least 10 police complaints since March the 7th, including an instance where the 29-year-old actor was allegedly filming people at a gas station. Uh, this is not their first altercation caught on, uh, made, made known to the public. In April 2020, video surfaced of Miller trying to choke a female fan at an Iceland bar. They became visi- visibly agitated after being approached by fans and were subsequently escorted off the premises. However, no charges were filed uh, stemming from that situation. In addition to the starring maybe role in the upcoming flash film who knows with how many batmen are in it miller will also appear in this month's fantastic beasts the secrets of dumbledore dave i have no idea what to do with this like what does wb go do from here like the the flash movie to begin with uh most of the attention around that is around every other character appearing in that film 
Miller has seemingly gone off the deep end. Like this is like one of those E true Hollywood stories already. Like you usually get like 10, 20 years later. Like this is some wild stuff. Yeah, there's definitely something weird going on here. I'm really not quite sure uh, how how to uh, how to deal with the story. I will say that uh, obviously the Flash movie is going to be in trouble if our friend Ezra doesn't start restraining himself a little bit, because from a publicity standpoint, uh, this is just going to make the the movie and the production look very bad, and WB is going to be uh, hesitant to put him out front to help market this movie. You know, them. the late night talk show circuit. Them, thank you. Yeah, so it's going to be a struggle to put you know them out front uh, as a you know a promoter of this film, um, given you know this 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 sort of criminal history. Um, obviously, you know we don't know all the details of everything going on there. Although you know there are some police reports that have been leaked and the like. Um, I'll also point out though uh, two things that I find extremely interesting uh, about this. Uh, one. I think it's interesting that once again the Snyder Bros are on social media are taking the absolute worst tack to this, uh, flooding Twitter uh, over the last forty eight hours or so prior to recording this with all sorts of uh, a friend of a friend of a friend of a guy that I know in Hawaii says that this is all a bunch of lies and you know the police is really harassing uh, Ezra Miller and all this and I'm you know I'm not I'm not quite sure how to take that I know there's there's a huge fandom. Uh, for anybody and everybody who was even tangentially con- connected to, uh, you know, the Snyder DC productions, but I think in this particular case, when you have police reports, that might not be the the best route to take. Um, the other thing I find really fascinating is how quiet it has been since these uh, news stories have started hitting. Um, with WB not, you know, making any uh, statements or, or saying anything about this, even though, you know, as you mentioned, uh, the the new Fantastic Beasts movie is coming soon, the Flash soon thereafter. Um, another another WB production, we should know. Yeah, yeah, both WB productions. And, and contrast this with the story I really didn't want to talk about because everybody has a take on it. Um, but contrast this with the slap heard around the world. Um, where, where, you know, Will Smith at the Oscars uh, slapped Chris Rock after a, a joke uh, and all the condemnation that has been flying around specifically for this one act, whereas, you know, you have a litany of offenses from, from Miller and they are not being held, I would say, to the same accountability level as as somebody like Will Smith is. So I think, I think it's the, the silence from from WB from Hollywood generally speaking around all this it, it is truly deafening it's it there seems to be a, a bit of a double standard going on here and I'm not quite sure what that stems from yeah I'm going to resist the urge to comment on the the latter portion there because I'm just exhausted at this point how has it already been a week and good gracious but anyway um yeah, it's really strange. And it's also interesting that our last episode was on separating art from artists. And at this point with the Snyder bros and, and the Snyder cult, let's call it what it is. Uh, it, it's, I, I, I want to try and separate um, fans from artists. Like, like at this point, yes. like, that's, like I, I have nothing against Zack Snyder. Some of his stuff I really dig. Like Army of the Dead was like ridiculously fun. Like I had a lot of fun watching that for this show and reviewing it. Um, 
and and to the point where I was like, maybe their horror stuff like is more up my alley, which is crazy for me being a non-horror person. But like, I really vibed with that movie. I really, really enjoyed it. Their take on the DC characters is not my thing. But then again, I did watch Dark Dark Phoenix for the first time, strictly for comedic value. And say what you want about Zack Snyder's vision for the DC universe. Nothing is as awful as what my favorite mutants were done, what was done to them, because it's not a competition for the worst comic book films. That one is just so, so awful. Uh, and that last string of, of X-Men films in particular. So, yeah, it, it really is crazy. And, and, and you don't know where to go from here. Um, you know, if we go strictly business, um, Ezra Miller's interpretation of The Flash was not my favorite. I thought it was a discount Peter Parker. And from what I know about Barry Allen, that's more th- that doesn't really seem in line with the Barry Allen character. Um, and I saw somebody with a great take. We should have just used Grant Gustin to begin with. So as as <laughs> as as many as many issues as I have with the CW Flash series, Grant Gustin and Candace Patton, who's perfect, uh, are not one of them. Uh, so yeah, it's, I have no idea where we're going to go from here. Yeah, it's 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 a troubling situation for sure for the WB, which you know seems to have continuous issues anytime that uh, they try to adapt any kind of DC property, it seems like. All right. Speaking of karaoke, though, Dave, another favorite is Too Little Too Late. And that has uh, made me think of your new story. Yeah, it turns out that uh, Sony has finally unveiled its Game Pass competitor, uh, which is basically a revamped version of the PlayStation Plus program that they've had in the past Uh, they have created a three-tier system because of course why would you want to do something simple when you can make it difficult Uh, so in this particular case playstation's game pass competitor is going to follow the following tiers tier one is playstation plus extra uh no I apologize. Let me go ahead and rephrase this. Uh, PlayStation Plus Essential is basically the original PlayStation Plus membership, uh, which is basically two monthly downloadable games, some discounts, cloud storage for saved games, and online multiplayer. And this sucker will run $9.99 a month or $59.99 a year. The second tier is PlayStation Plus Extra, which uh, obviously has all of the essential tier stuff, plus a catalog of up to 400 of the most enjoyable PS4 and PS5 games, including blockbuster hits from our PlayStation Studio catalog and third-party partners. Um, And this will be $14.99 a month or $99.99 yearly. And then PlayStation Plus Premium is sort of the, the, the... biggest tallest order of it all all the benefits of the previous two tiers plus adds up to 340 additional games including ps3 games available via cloud streaming a catalog of beloved classic games available available in both streaming and download options from the original playstation playstation 2 and psp generations um cloud streaming for certain games of the playstation ps2 psp uh, and ps4 and that will run $17.99 a month or $119.99 yearly. A um, couple interesting things to note here. Um, so first, from my understanding of how this thing is structured, um, backwards compatibility via disc is not going to be an option. So if you have a PlayStation 1 disc, 
uh, of a game. You won't be able to pop it in like you do on the Xbox and then download uh, the backwards uh, compatible emulation patch so you can play that um, without, you know, an extra charge or anything. So that's uh, out of the door. Um, also interesting to note, uh, PlayStation 3 games will be only available on the premium tier via cloud streaming. Um, I'm assuming this is because the PlayStation 3 had a notoriously difficult, unique architecture. And because of that, it's it's even for Sony almost impossible to emulate on some of their newer machines. So they're going to have to use cloud streaming uh, to achieve that. Uh, the biggest um, difference, I would say, though, between this and Xbox's Game Pass is that first-party titles will not release to the service day and date, uh, which means you might be able to sit on you know, Xbox Game Pass and get something like Halo Infinite on the day it releases for free on Game Pass with your subscription. This will not happen with something like you know, uh, God of War Ragnarok when it releases. It will not be available day and date. You still have to go out and drop your 60 bucks to buy it. Um, and so from a business standpoint, to a certain extent, that makes sense, considering, you know, um, their first party games from Sony are pretty successful um, as it is. Um, but given the storm of studio buying that Microsoft has been engaged in, uh, I find it difficult to believe, to believe that this is going to long term be the best strategy for Sony. Um, because, you know, with stuff like Bethesda now in their back pocket, you have these super, you know, huge major releases hitting Game Pass day and date. I think that is going to continue to be something that attracts people to Game Pass over this new uh, PlayStation Plus lineup. Um, so, you know, uh, I'm, I'm glad that they kind of started figuring out things a little bit. I'm glad that, you know, people are going to start being able to play at least some PlayStation, PlayStation 2 games, and PlayStation 3 games on their newer consoles. I think that has been something that's been really sorely lacking, I think, for a lot of people, unless they were there. I think the PlayStation 3 generation is like this huge question mark. Um, a lot of those games might find uh, a lot of fans now again. Um, now that that is easily available on a, on a modern console, I think that's great. Uh, but I also think, as you said in the introduction, that this is maybe a little too too little too late at this point. Um, I mean, Xbox Game Pass is sitting at something like 25 million subscribers at this point, and they still sound like the better deal overall. Uh, not, not to mention the fact that you, of course, have the ability through Microsoft Rewards to basically get your Game Pass membership for free rather than having to, you know, pour down $120 yearly. So... Um, what do you think here, Chris? I think that not releasing things day and date is a little bit shallow. <laughs> uh, don't come at me, bro. Don't come at me. <laughs> um, that's um, that's reaching my heart. will go on levels for me. As, as far as um, as far as my love for Xbox Game Pass, I'm off the deep end. Watch as I dive in. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna need therapy after this podcast. <laughs> no, but seriously, um, I, I at, at the at the risk of sounding like a broken record, like how many times do I have to come on this show and just shout from the rooftops how much I love Xbox Game Pass? Like, um, you know, particularly as someone, as I detailed before, that took several years off for gaming. You know, you know, kid kids are expensive, and you know, I had a lot of time, you know, wrangling 
toddlers and and everything so i didn't have a whole lot of time for video games and then you know with something like game pass where i can go back and play first generation xbox games 360 games that i missed out on like all of my free time is spoken for you know and then with new games that not only do you get them day and date you can also pre-download them so you don't have to sit there and you know like for example mlb2 uh mlb22 the show uh, the new game is, I think, releasing later this week, but I already have it downloaded. So as soon as like Xbox opens the floodgates, I can go play it because it's already downloaded. One of my nitpicks of buying new games in this in this generation of gaming. Um, and then you have th- this one flew under my radar, but this game called Weird West. It might be a future nerd commendation. I haven't played it a whole lot, but Dave, this sounds like something you'd enjoy. Weird West is like this horror western, like. It's like if like Red Dead Redemption and insert horror game, I don't know, like had a love child and not in addition to fighting bandits, you're fighting zombies in the in the Wild West. So it's like really cool. The controls and the mechanics are, uh, are taking me a little bit uh, of adjust, you know, time to adjust. But it's a really cool game and I got it day one. So um I, I don't know what to tell you at this point, like, and, and, you know, my social media, I have friends that are Sony gamers and of course they're resting on their laurels of we're the best. We have the, you know, the big name titles and the exclusives. And I'm just like, okay, you go. I hope that keeps you warm at night because I'm just playing a butt ton of games that are awesome. So yeah, I, I think everybody's pretty much entrenched in their camps, but I'm very happy where I'm at. See, that is me too. I think, I think with the launch of the uh, original Xbox One, I think so. Um, Microsoft made a lot of mistakes, and Sony was able to capitalize on that. But in the meantime, in order to kind of fix the mistakes of that generation, I think uh, slowly over time, uh, Microsoft has become just somehow the more fan friendly, the more gamer friendly company. And I know that's that's really hard to believe, but if you look at you know, Sony versus, you know, Nintendo versus Microsoft. I think out of the three big players in the gaming industry right now, Microsoft is by far the more gamer oriented. Um, even Nintendo does some, make some really, really weird, questionable decisions sometimes that makes, you know, gamers extremely angry. So I think Microsoft right now is just kind of knocking it out of the park. And I, you know, I, I'm hoping that they'll uh, like that they'll continue like this. Alrighty, folks. Well, that's it for Nerd News. Stick around because after this first break, we're going to come back with some time travel jokes. So stick around. Ladies and gentlemen, people, welcome back. It is time for a long and unhealthy discussion about time travel in this week's Chris, what do we want? Time travel. When do we want it? That's irrelevant. In this week's Big Talk, we are going to go ahead and uh, dive into some of our all-time favorite time travel stories. These can be franchises that are predominantly reliant on time travel. These can be individual episodes or comic books or or storylines. Anything time travel related that we find uh, just really, really works. And maybe in the course of this discussion, we'll discover some of the rules for how to make a really good time travel story, at least in the opinion of a couple of nerds. So, Chris, your first time travel story franchise is what? 
Okay, so this this episode has kind of been in the works for quite a long time. It was proposed by you. You have a deep like knowledge and experience when it comes to time travel. Me, not so much. So I was kind of hesitant, but I finally sat down and thought like, you know, what what time travel stories or games or franchises do I enjoy? It's not something that I'm like super well versed in, but I was finally able to sit down and hammer something out. So um, I'm, I'm excited to get dig into your bona fides, if you will. But the first thing that jumps out as far as like a time travel story that I just love near and dear is stop me if I've said this before, but the Assassin's Creed franchise, uh, you know, as like a history nut lover, the idea of historical fiction has always gripped me. Um, I read like the when, when I was in elementary school, like I read the super abridged picture book version of the three musketeers and just from that point i was just hooked on anything that i could get my hands on that was a historical fiction um and so when assassin's creed came around um i was all in and i've always you know i I made it my career choice i've always been fascinated with cultures and faiths and languages that were not my own um and so going to you know um the Middle East in, in the early centuries AD was just a fascinating thing. And, um, and then it really kicked into high gear with starting with Assassin's Creed two, um, which I've talked about as being one of the most influential favorite video games of all time. But like even that trilogy of games surrounding Ezio Auditore da Firenze and just watching that character progression, jumping back and forth and just the idea of tying um dna and heritage into something like that is a really unique concept and really really cool and then being able to tell this centuries-long story of the hatfields and mccoys of medieval history of of the templars and the assassins uh is really fascinating and uh, I know we've I know we've joked about it before where the present day stuff isn't as compelling um as as like the the you know the ancient histories or medieval history stuff, but um, particularly that that S, the Ezio collection that I have in my library that I uh, that I revisit regularly, and I'm not a, usually a rereader or um, someone who rewatches things or replays things because I already know how the story ends and it's not really compelling to me. But that's like the the high mark of a good story is. If, if I want to revisit it, then it must be good because usually I'm just like, I already know how this, you know, I, I usually don't watch movies over and over again. This are an absolute favorite or games or anything like that. Um, but yeah, the Assassin's Creed franchise is one of my all time favorites and time travel just happens to be a part of it. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned that it's it's. Um... You know, Assassin's Creed is an interesting series for me in that I played the first couple and then kind of fell off the wagon a little bit and then came back with, with Origins and really found... Oh, the, Origins. The... Oh, my God. I love Origins. I just started playing Origins again. That's how good it is. It's so perfect. Yeah, the, I think the revamped gameplay that, that they kind of started uh, with Origins, I think, was was a very, very smart move. It, it really kind of shifts the, the franchise in a very interesting direction. But I also find it interesting that, from my understanding, starting with Origins, sort of the future stuff, the present-day stuff, has been kind of dropped. It's 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 been tweaked a little bit, and it's not nearly as involved as the previous iterations. Yeah. So... 
Um, it seems like at least that element uh, of the story, the time travel portion, seems to be coming less and less um, relevant to what they're doing, which I think is kind of sad. Um, because even though I think that particular storyline through the first couple games at least felt like it was kind of uh, treading water a little bit, um, I think there's definitely something there that makes it unique than just another you know, video game that is happens to be set in the past, you know? So uh, here's hoping that they don't completely abandon that and they kind of find a better rhythm for present-day segments to kind of keep keep that science fiction-y nature of it alive a little bit, Chris. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, now, they have a unique thing, and this character's name is escaping me, um, but one of the interesting things that they have that's, that's developed and 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 for me i think that um i'm jumping around here but what i loved about origins is we had the first non-european uh hero and like finally and you know we jumped right back into um europe after that so as much as i love greek mythology and greek history odyssey was fun and i am a norseman myself so so Ragnarok was fun, but just the idea of ancient Egypt and um, just diving into that world and immersing yourself was fascinating. But, um, you know, yes. So like the present day stuff is less included, I guess. But I think Odyssey, I don't want to give away too much. I don't want to spoil too much here. But especially with Odyssey and distinctly with Ragnarok, there's some really interesting things that they have done with the present day stuff and tying that into the the ancient history stuff and really kind of turned it on its head. So when you, when you get there, I'd be interested to revisit that. Yeah, I think so. I think we can definitely do that. All right, Dave. Um, we talked about this series uh, not too long ago with the reboot on the horizon. Oh, boy. Well, so 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 here's the dealio. When it comes to time travel stories, I think there are probably no finer franchises than Quantum Leap. Uh, this is a science fiction TV series uh, created by Donald P. Belisario. It aired on NBC for five seasons from 1989 through 1993, and is um, it's just a beautiful piece, I think, uh, of television. You know, a lot of time travel stories get incredibly involved with like the rules of time travel and what you can and can't do while you're in the past. Um, and usually um, a lot of time travel stories, uh, they kind of rely on like big scenarios, big moments and, you know, uh, saving the world. And, and, and Quantum Leap, I think, smartly kind of sidesteps a lot of this stuff in that it very, very rarely engages directly with really, really big, huge historical events or personalities besides, you know, like kind of brushes with fame, right? But what it really focuses on that I find so very uh, endearable, uh, endearing about this show is that it focuses on small-scale situations. It's about, you know, individual characters, families, you know, on the verge of falling apart and all that sort of thing. And the, the, the purpose of the show very much is... Um, it is fixing something in the past, only it's not something so big that it would completely change the world if it were fixed. So, you know, you have Dr. Sam Beckett, who's a physicist, uh, and he is, you know, tests his machine to travel into the past and basically gets stuck. 
uh, bouncing from time period to time period and looking for a way home. And every time that he leaps through time, he basically um, replaces an individual in the past and everybody sees him as that individual. So he basically slides into these different people's lives and then tries to figure out what went wrong in this person's life uh, or in the lives of the people around this person and then tries to fix that. And that is a very personal, character-driven level of storytelling that many time travel stories don't ever quite achieve, with with some exceptions. And so bringing it down to this really personal level uh, makes it a really, really strong uh, time travel series for me. Uh, in addition, you know, because of the way it's set up, you have, you know, constantly like a rotating cast of characters. So even if uh, a particular episode or scenario doesn't appeal to you, well, don't worry, next week, it's going to be something completely different. And of course, um, you know, the show being a product of its time, uh, you know, late 80s, early 90s, uh, it doesn't always perfectly hit the mark when it does try to take on, you know, um, social ills of the past, but it does make, uh, I think, a valiant attempt oftentimes uh, to comment on um, on the difficulties of, you know, minority groups, of women in the past trying to make in the workforce and so on and so forth. And there are episodes that, that have stuck with me over the years as just a really... Um, heart-wrenching or heartwarming that that have never quite let me go since I was a child. I, I keep coming back to this show, even though it's aging now and, and not everything holds up. Um, so I just, I really love the original Quantum Leap series, which is why, you know, as we talked about before, the remake, um, I have some trepidations about because, you know, th- this show is special because of the the approach that it took to time travel and how it tried to make things extremely personal and character-driven. And I don't think, um, I don't think they always get that right in science fiction TV shows anymore. You know, a lot of a lot of stuff is very spectacle driven, and Quantum Leap is is not that. It's good because it's not that, Chris. And I, and I think I just had an epiphany, an aha moment, if you will. Is and I think one of the reasons that I've kind of been kind of blasé about time travel is, as I just said. I don't like knowing how the story ends and what's the number one rule with time travel, you know, the butterfly effect. You can't go back and change anything because you can't change the course of history. So I, I think that's where I find some of that stuff unappealing. Um, you know, in the case of your second story, not to put the cart before the, ho- before the horse, I think why I love things like that is because it's set in the future and we don't know how things develop. Um, but I, that's a really interesting, you know, observation is like, we're not, you know, going back and trying to radically change, you know, world history, but like smaller scale individual citizens and their stories type of stuff, um, is, is kind of an interesting spin on that. Cause usually it's the same old tropes of, we can't go change anything. And, you know, so everything is right back where it started from. And that's not really that interesting to me. So I'm glad to see this is something different. And I think um, Doctor Who uh, has taken, I think, over the years, a very interesting approach to that, too. Because in a, in a way, they figured out how to have their cake and eat it, too, when it comes to that. How in the stuff. world did you, not spoiler alert, how did you not put any Doctor Who on your list? 
I, I actually played around with <laughs> with Doctor Who uh, a couple episodes in particular, but uh, w- when it comes right down to it, I think a Quantum Leap has had a bigger impact on me long term because I came to it sooner. Um, I never had a chance really to see Doctor Who until much later, um, and and a couple of the other things were just more impactful on me uh long term doctor who was very light and breezy uh in most cases and not super dramatic which is you know fun in its own way and it has really really huge ideas sometimes which i absolutely adore about it too um but but as far as like long-term impact on me personally i want i wanted to keep things a little more you know personal i guess when it comes to my picks here also um, it's got to be the slug people right uh, obviously uh, <laughs> that's, no. <laughs> that's no i i legitimately i have a billion things on my to watch to read to playlist and every time i come back to that i'm like okay i i need to pause like that's just disgusting <laughs> <laughs> so so doctor who's solution to that whole you know what what's gonna happen thing is that they, they ba- the show basically postulates that there's two different types of events there are events that are flexible and malleable you can change them um, without any major repercussions, it, it might change the future, but it, you know, in, in the grand scheme of time, that's okay. And then there are certain things that are fixed points in time. These are unchangeable and unalterable. And if you attempt to change those, you will either fail or you'll basically break time because these fixed points cannot be altered. And so, you know, you're constantly moving through the show, you know, and you're wondering, is this something that's fixed? Is this something that can be changed? And so the outcome is never quite clear uh, in Doctor Who, which keeps, you know, the the suspense going a little bit. And I think it addresses that problem you mentioned of always knowing where things end up pretty well. All right, Chris, so what is your second pick as far as time travel stories? Well, it's not a proper list if it doesn't have X-Men on it for me. So, um... I yeah. noticed. <laughs> and and I, I I vented about this earlier a little bit, but I think one of the greatest disappointments of my nerd life is the cinematic universe of the X-Men. Um, now, the film Days of Future Past isn't awful, but it's not great either. Um, and if that's your standard of, you know, X-Men films, then I'm, I'm okay with just neglecting it. Um and the probably my greatest critique and greatest issue with that is something we touched on our our fixing of the first X-Men film is Wolverine can't be the point of view character and just retconning or retooling with all of that just to take your most popular character and make him the center of it all, I think was that film's greatest sin. Um, but... In contrast, the comic book, its source material, its inspiration, written um, by none other than Chris Claremont, and uh, the art done by John Byrne. Claremont Byrne, I mean, ask any X-Men fan, they'll tell you to go directly to Claremont Byrne. That's the height, um, you know, of of X-Men comics for most people. Um, And this is probably when they were at their height creatively. Um... So you have uh, adult Kate Pride projecting her mind and consciousness into her younger self, Kitty Pride, to stop an assassination attempt um, by Mystique that will set off this chain of events in the future um, and prevent the the future that Kate is living in that is ruled by Sentinels. Mutants are in internment camps and almost completely eradicated. So um, 
I'm just such a Claremont fan as a fan of classical literature. I know some people criticize Claremont for being extremely wordy, um, but that's my bread and butter. So I absolutely love it. And then Byrne for all of his whatevers, uh, character wise, uh, individually, uh, his art is impeccable. So Claremont and Byrne just knocking it out of the park, creatively speaking, and crazy to think that this entire arc is just two issues. So we're talking Uncanny X-Men 141 and 142, originally published in 1981. Um, So it's not like a heavy homework assignment if you wanted to check it out. Uh, But Days of Future Past is one of like the the high watermarks of of X-Men comics and um, one of my all-time favorite time travel stories. And it's interesting because for me, I've actually never sat down and read the actual comic book. I've seen the movie, obviously, and I thought it was passably fine. Um, Didn't exactly blow my mind or anything, but it wasn't as offensive as some other X-Men movies have been. Um, Like uh, some of those X-Men movies are borderline crimes against comic nerddom, I think. Uh, So I'm very interested in reading this. I might have to slide into uh, you know Marvel Unlimited and, and give this one a check out because I really know nothing about the original comic book besides what some people have said to me over the years, including you. All right. So here's something interesting, a connection with uh, what we were just talking about. I'm reading from the Wikipedia page here. John Byrne devised the plot for Days of Future Past since he wanted to do a story featuring the Sentinels and his collaborator, Chris Chris Claremont had no interest in coming up with one. Years later, Burns said he realized that he unconsciously lifted the, quote, spine of the plot from the 1972 Doctor Who serial Day of the Daleks. That sounds about right, yeah. And you know what? I, I hadn't considered that, but that, that seems like, a, like a, probably a fair thing to say. Wow. I, I, now I really want to read it. <laughs> All right, Dave. Uh, I'd let you call dibs on this one, but that's okay because we both love it so much. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that uh, Deep Space Nine is probably both of our favorite Star Trek series at this point. Um, and I think it still holds up tremendously well. And there are things, uh, individual episodes, that I think transcend you know, Deep Space Nine as a series and transcends Star Trek. And uh, one of those episodes is episode 75. It was the uh, second episode of season four or five. I'm not quite sure. Um, Season four, uh, third episode of season four, and it's called uh, The Visitor. Um, And this particular episode deals with uh, Captain Benjamin Sisko being in sort of the, the usual kind of, you know, accident of techno babble. And being sort of unstuck in time. And we get to see his son Jake uh, grow up, become obsessed with trying to rescue his father because his father keeps popping up uh, over, you know, many, many years in Jake's life, kind of appears, speaks to him briefly, and then, you know, goes back to being stuck in time. And... I hope I'm explaining this well, Chris, but I think the gist of this um, this episode is very much in the line of something like uh, like Quantum Leap. It's it's very very personal. It's very you know, small scale. This is not some huge epic you know special effects fest. This is you know a son suffering from survivor's guilt. You know that just wants his father back, and and that that core of it. Um, and the love between those two characters and, and, and that father-son dynamic, which is so important to Deep Space Nine overall, I think has never been finer 
than in this episode. Um, kudos also to uh, to Tony Todd who pops up in this one uh, as the o- yeah as the older Jake Candyman, <laughs> who absolutely brother of Worf. Yeah, who absolutely carries this episode. His performance oh. is so incredible. Um, and, and the whole thing is so heart-wrenching. And it comes to this really bittersweet conclusion. Um, it still puts a tear in my eye, even though I've seen this episode probably five or six times at this point. Um, it just never gets old. And it is, it is again, to me at least, the very best of what time travel does, which is small-scale it is personal. It focuses on character and what can time travel do to tell a deeply personal character driven story. I'm, I'm fighting. I'm getting emotional just thinking about this episode, honestly, and, and I'm fighting back tears just thinking about it. Um, every time that I hear him say Jaco and kiss Jake on the forehead, it just, Everything that I feel for my children is perfectly encapsulated with what Ben Sisko has with his son, Jake. Um, You know, the struggle of being a single father. I felt that deep in my spirit. Um, And I think one critic writes here that, quote, it sums up everything that made DS9 so unforgettable. And I think that's the perfect way to, to say this. I mean, like... Tony Todd is so fantastic as an actor. And I mean, he's also the voice of Venom for Pete's sake. And so, so good. Um, but yeah, DS9 is, it's, it's so crazy to think about recency bias, but as you know, fans know I'm watching through it the first time for the first time. And, you know, episode 99 guys is right around the corner. And that is all about DS9. It is a complete, episode mailbag everything so be ready for 99 um but i also think of um and i almost put this on my list but i was like well we can just add it an addendum here but like also the the episode times orphan when molly gets trapped in time and comes back and she's an older version of herself but she's lived for 10 years in the wilderness on her own and is completely mute and just watching this family that I love so dearly. Yes. Miles finally got his crap together. I had enough of his crap uh, the first couple of seasons, but I finally am tolerating him because Keiko is a goddess and a queen. Um, but just watching them struggle with their daughter and just the heartbreak and the day in day out struggle. And then, you know, ultimately the age they, they like just, sacrifice their daughter to time just because it's the right thing to do and then for little molly to come back fortunately at the end it's just it's just heart-wrenching and what ds9 in particular does so well better than i'm i'm ready to elevate this and i'm not even done yet i've on episode seven of season seven i've got to crank it out we just got a couple weeks but what DS9 does so well, and I'm ready to elevate this. It's not just my favorite Star Trek. I think it might be my favorite thing in all of my fandoms. It's such a beautiful thing. And what it does to the best of anything that I've ever viewed is it makes you feel these characters and it makes you care about these characters. It makes you love these characters. I would do anything for any one of these characters. I love them all. Yes. Even miles. Um, (laughs) 
I, I, you can identify with so many of them. I feel like the dorky thespian that is like a fish out of water, like Julian Bashir. I feel like a father who cares so deeply um, and is thrust into this role of leadership, like Ben Sisko. I would follow that man into the trenches. Like there is no one that I would follow once more onto the breach than Ben Sisko. I feel like a man caught between two worlds, like uh, Worf. I feel so many different things for so many different characters. As a writer with Jake and always just trying to do the right thing and tell the story that needs to be told, like Jaco. Um, I love baseball. And so I just watched the, the baseball episode and, oh my God, Rom. Okay, we have to save some of this. For I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but like this show's perfect, and I can't wait for 99. Yeah, uh, episode Deep Space 99. I think it's going to be a lot of fun for us. Uh, there's a lot of pent up stuff that I think we need to discuss. <laughs> Ram and Lita, we love you. Ram and Lita, the goats, we love you. <laughs> One of the most beautiful relationships <laughs> I've ever seen. See, Ollie agrees. <laughs> yep he usually does <laughs> all right so what is your third and final uh favorite uh time travel story so this is kind of like um a curveball um sticking with the baseball puns this is a series that i think was canceled after two seasons on nbc and it kind of flew under the radar um i'm talking about timeless and like i said previously i love historical fiction and the idea of dancing around in time i was willing to excuse um, some of my preconceived notions about time travel stories because this just like brought to the forefront some of the historical figures and time periods that are so fascinating to me. So Timeless is this group of people that um, go back into history. Here, here's the synopsis. When a group of uh, when a group with nefarious intentions attempts to change the world as we know it by altering the past, Lucy, a historian, Wyatt, a soldier, and Rufus, a scientist, unite to form an unlikely partnership traveling through time to save history. Their riveting adventures take them to some of the most thrilling, volatile, and critical events on record, including a venture to the Old West, a sojourn to the Alamo, a visit to the famous Chicago World's Fair, and a crusade into Nazi Germany. Along the way, they cross paths with famous historical icons such as Josephine Baker, Harry Houdini, Ernest Hemingway, and infamous rivals Elliot Ness and Al Capone. But every step the team takes to protect history puts everything we know at risk because changing one thing changes everything. And what I love about this show, other than the fact that Man Matt Lanter, Anakin Skywalker himself, is one of the central characters, is, and you touched on this previously, how do you tackle um, you know, the social issues when you're going back in time like that? And having uh, a Black character, Malcolm Barrett, as Rufus, being one of the the three of that that triumvirate of of main characters is really fascinating as he goes back in time and stuff like that so um this was a really fascinating series and also because it really brought to the forefront some of the um one of the podcasts that i love that you introduced me to was stuff you missed in history class um these characters that we don't talk nearly enough about like josephine baker like bass reeves and uh, all these characters that have fascinating stories, but we brush over it to talk about the Civil War for the 8,000th time, because if you live in the South, they can't stop talking about the Civil War. Um, but, you know, so some of these underserved characters in history 
um, really bringing them to the forefront and, you know, bringing the Tulsa riots, which was um, a very important piece of history that is so far neglected. And I think subsequent series like um, the Watchmen and um, Lovecraft Country did so intricately and perfectly. It's really, really important that these underserved portions of history and characters of history are brought to the forefront and throwing the sci-fi time travel aspect and this big bad corporation uh, a la the Templars again. Like that's my bread and butter. So I I really love this series and it deserves way more than two seasons, but um, I think it's on Peacock, which I just ponied up to watch WrestleMania. So I'm going to have to dive in and watch this again. So I've I heard of this show and repeatedly you know wanted to make time for it and never got to because it sounds like you know exactly up my alley. I don't know much about it overall besides what you just told me and a few articles that have floated you know uh, my direction when uh, the the series was canceled and how many people were upset about it and that you know it had a very very dedicated following. So uh, I'm putting this one on my list as something that I need to check out and soon. All right, Dave, this is really interesting. Because you left off Doctor Who, but you included something rotten, dare I say, on your list? Uh, you know what? I don't give a crap. I don't <laughs> give a crap what people say about this show, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. That, so first of all, uh, the, the show I'm getting ready to talk about, did it run for long? No. Uh, ran for a season. Does it hold up by modern standards? Probably not. But you know when you're a child and you encounter a certain type of storytelling for the first time and it leaves an indelible fingerprint on you? This is that show. This is the show that introduced me to the notion of time travel. And so I have no choice but to talk about Voyagers with an exclamation point. Oh, that's I, the official I'm sorry. Way to spell it. I'm sorry. Google brought me up to the wrong thing. This is something else. I yeah. don't know if it's rotten or not. Yeah, so Voyagers with an exclamation point is a science fiction television series that I didn't have the uh, in... I didn't have the exclamation point. That was my fallacy. The, exclam- <laughs> the, the exclamation point is extremely important. Um, so this is a, a time travel series that aired on uh, NBC from 1982 to 1983. I think it had a grand total of 20 episodes, um, and it is uh, in essence about a. Um, a guy called Phineas Bogg, yes, uh, very uh, sort of reminiscent of Phineas yes. Bogg, yeah, played by John Eric Hexham, who is part of a society of time travelers known as the Voyagers, whose job it is to basically make sure that history always occurs exactly as it's supposed to. Uh, his range on his little device that allows him to travel through time is an om- it's called an omni uh, is supposed to go only uh, up till about 1970 uh, but there's a malfunction and he ends up in 1982 in uh, the room of a orphan um, who uh, we call Jeffrey Jones uh, played by Mino Palouse who uh, you know is pretty much all alone in the world and falls out of a window Bog dives after him and saves him by using his Omni device. Um, but now there's no way for Jeffrey to go home because the Omni can't travel as far as 1982 normally. Uh, flip side there is that uh, Bog lost his guidebook that shows exactly how history is supposed to happen. But thankfully, Jeffrey is kind of a history nerd and knows a whole bunch about how history is supposed to happen. And so the two team up um, traveling through time together and trying to make sure that history occurs exactly as it's supposed to. 
So this is, you know, not the small scale personal storytelling that I love so much in uh, in, in time travel series as an adult, um, but it is uh, very, very cool because it plays right into my absolute um, adoration of, of history and, and the things that happened in the past. Um, it has been... It has been described by by modern reviewers as a live action version of Mr. Peabody and Sherman, which <laughs> I think is which I think is ironically probably fairly accurate. It's pretty child friendly overall. It's it's very much a product of its time. Its its history isn't always perfect by modern standards, but there is something really swashbuckling and adventuring about this show. And I'm I'm, I'm going to say it right now dynamite boom any other comic book publisher if you want to get the rights to this thing i have a mean reboot i'm willing to pitch you because i have mad love for these 20 episodes i think even by modern standards there is a a huge amount of potential in in the um in the actual you know basic premise of the show and you know set me loose and i will write it for you no problem I might not even charge you. Uh, I have mad love for the series, uh, despite the fact that it's age, despite the fact that, you know, it's it's not always on point. Uh, there's really, really great chemistry between uh, Mino Palouse and Jeffrey, uh, as Jeffrey Jones and Eric, uh, John Eric Hexum as Phineas Bogg. I think there's really uh, like a cool interplay uh, between the two. Uh I'll say that Hexum, who I think came to a pretty bad ending, uh, has like great charisma in the role. Um, there's just really something about this show that that has you know captivated me since childhood, and I keep coming back to it, no matter how hokey or aged it is. There's just something there, Chris. It's hard to put my finger on, but I just I love it. Um, just in my very rapid research, now that I realize I was looking up the wrong series. Um, I'm I'm already sold based on two catchphrases: "Smart kids give me a pain" and "bat's breath." <laughs> yeah, there's there's just really something about this one, man. It's just I I don't know. I I I wished I, you know maybe I need to sit down and just reread the uh, rewatch the whole thing and then write down my thoughts about what it is about the show that keeps captivating me. It it's just it it it's got its hooks in me, man. All right, folks. Well, that is it for our big talk. What are your favorite time travel stories? And what do you like most about time travel stories? Is it the big epic, you know, save the world stuff? Is is it the smaller character stuff? What are the things about time travel stories that captivate you? Find us on social media, on Instagram and Twitter at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris or at nerd by word and tell us your thoughts. Now we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, it's time for some nerd commendations. All right, folks, we're back, and it's time for the most positive piece of our episodes. It is, of course, time for... And Chris, bring on some turtles, love. Man, I... This is one of my favorite things in entertainment. I love when editorial or the powers that be, whoever lets a creative person just cook in the kitchen. Um, And for this week's nerd commendation, that would be the TMNT annual 2022 
which was written and drawn by Junie Ba with colors by Rhonda Patterson. Now, Junie Ba is this up and coming star in comics. Um, they recently published Jelia. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, which is a graphic novel based uh, deeply in West African folklore. So that's next on my to read list immediately after this. But they've also done a lot of covers for uh, the Ninja Turtles comics. Um, but giving them the entire um, annual to just tell this beautiful story. Um, so spoilers if you're not there yet for TMNT comics. But um, Master Splinter has died and um, the brothers and everyone in their circle are, are still reeling from that. They haven't properly processed that, um, that grief. And so this is just like a one shot story about, you know, processing and dealing with grief. And, um, there's a particular foe that they have to face that feeds off of anguish and grief and pain and loss and so this is just a really beautiful story about how to deal with things like that. I think probably the quote of the nerd world for last year was um, from WandaVision, uh, you know, what is grief if not love persevering? Um, I hope I'm getting that right. But nonetheless, uh, it's something that if you've ever lost someone, particularly someone that is close to you or in your family or someone influential like a parent or a parent figure, like that, that really, it, it's a really tough thing to deal with. And so this was just like a beautiful story. And then, you know, Junie Ba's art, I'm, I'm falling head over heels in love with and, and being new to this, this creator. Um, it's electric. It's, it's, um, I believe that they list, you know, the Cartoon Network's um, Adult Swim animation um, as, as one of their primary influences. So you get like some, like some Samurai Jack in this and that, that lends itself perfectly to the turtles. But there's also parts of it that are while, while you have the stuff that is like tough and gritty and, you know, street level heroes, you also have stuff that's like the big smile showing all their teeth um, that you can find on Jenny Ba's Instagram page. Like, uh, like it's just happiness. And then you also have a portion of the story where they go back to their roots in the Mirage comics and they're all wearing the red headbands and um so it's just like a really beautiful like one-off story um and and i'm really excited to go and read jalia now um and hopefully juniba can come back and do some more tmnt stuff because this was a really great story also a fantastic review on comics bookcase um by my friend zach that you can read as well but uh, do yourself a favor. You don't really need any continuity or to be super up to date other than, you know, that splinter has passed um, to read stories. So not any continuity errors or any or, or continuity conflicts, I should say. Uh, but yeah, the TMNT annual for 2022 by Junie Baugh and Rhonda Patterson is my nerd commendation for this week. Did you just say that splinter dies? Yep. You, you do realize that I'm not caught up on TMNT comic books. How could you, sir? Oop. How could you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so this this sounds definitely like something I need to check out just as soon as I get caught up because uh, it sounds incredibly consequential. Um, obviously, ties in with the larger themes of what's going on with the main book at the time. 
um, I'm, I'm there for it, man. But then again, I'm there for anything TMNT that that is put out by IDW. They just they just know their stuff, man. For serious, um, I mean, like everything is coming up roses for for IDW uh, Ninja Turtle comics. I totally agree, man. All right, uh, what is your nerd commendation for this week, Dave? We're gonna go nonfiction for a second. Um, there is a, a very, very interesting book by John Morris that I think is totally worth checking out. Uh, John Morris is a cartoonist and graphic designer. Um, he uh, has this really cool little blog that he's been operating God since the 90s called Gone and Forgotten, which is sort of a, a look at the weird stories and characters that have popped up in comic books. And so this book is sort of an outgrowth out of that blog and it's called The League of Regrettable Superheroes. And although this is a humorous book and it's very tongue-in-cheek, I think it's also an important book. Um, Because as we know, um, especially in the early goings of when superhero comics became sort of a thing, many publishers came and went very quickly many characters and concepts were attempted that never caught on as well as something like Superman, Batman, or Spider-Man. Um, and a lot of that kind of stuff has, is, is kind of forgotten these days. And I think e- even the unsuccessful attempts are sort of an important part of the history of the medium. And, and this book basically goes through uh, a whole bunch of characters uh, that were uh, attempted by various publishers Uh, and never quite caught on. Uh, The book is divided into the Golden Age, the Silver Age, and the Modern Age. Um, And, you know, it's fascinating um, characters such as the Speed Centaur, the Black Dwarf, Dr. Hormone, which may be a personal favorite, (laughs) Mr. Muscles, uh, Fat Man, which uh, is exactly what what you think it is, um, and then, uh, ironically, also includes Rom the Space Knight um, and the original Outsiders. Uh, so uh, it features, you know, a little write-up by uh, by Morse with, you know, a very very humorous approach, um, a pull quote of a weird quote that is associated with the character, um, and then of course some art to uh, show off. Um, you know, the character. And uh, I absolutely have to say uh, that I had much more fun than I probably should have had with this book um, because I have the deepest respect for any creator that steps out there and attempts to create, especially in a time period when, you know, comic books were very much no holds barred, like at the beginning, and you never quite know what's going to catch on. So you throw anything against the wall, hoping that'll stick. And and some of the stuff gets weird. Um, so I laughed. I, I'll freely admit I laughed at some of the stuff, but I also found it just incredibly enjoyable to see the slice of, of comic book history. Um, there is a companion piece to this one that I have not checked out yet called The Legion of Regrettable Supervillains, uh, which goes kind of through the same sort of uh, structure, but looking at the villains from comic book history. Um, and I'm really looking forward to reading that one as well. So uh, John Morris, The League of Regrettable Superheroes, gets my nerd commendation this week. I think it's totally worth a read. Wow, The Outsiders. So uh, I guess we can stay golden, Pony Boy. <laughs> <laughs> we also have Bozo the Iron Man on the cover. <laughs> there, there's also there, there's also a, a Thor character in here, if I remember correctly. Dynamite Thor is, is the name of the character. Uh, I think you totally need to, to check out Dynamite Thor and see if that uh, 
that scratches your Thor itch. I, I don't think it will, but it might be worth looking at. <laughs> also, also the eye is is fascinating here. Um, but yeah, it's it's crazy to think, and you touched on this in in your in your spiel. There is like it's it's crazy to go back to the golden age of comics and like why did Batman work but not B Man? <laughs> you know, like why did x story work but not this it's just crazy to kind of go back in that time of history take yourself in a time machine if you will uh and see like all the all the creative processes that were going on at the time so i'm definitely checking this guy out yeah i think you'll really enjoy it chris all righty folks that's it for this week's episode of the nerd by word podcast if you like what you heard jump on your favorite podcasting platform give us you know a rating a review subscribe so you never miss an episode we are available on all major podcasting platforms and even some non-major ones and of course you can also find us at our own website nerdbyword.com and as always, hit us up on social media at nerdbyword on twitter and instagram or individually that nerd dave that nerd chris And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm -hmm.